Welcome to Represented, a podcast from the Stanford University School of Medicine, Anesthesia Informatics, and Media Lab, where we shine a light on exceptional individuals driving transformation in healthcare and advocating for underrepresented communities. I'm your host, Dominique Garcia. Today, we're thrilled to welcome a powerful force in medicine, Dr. Eric Brode. He is an associate professor of family medicine at OHSU and the director of the Northwest Native American Center for Excellence. Join us as we delve into a riveting conversation with Dr. Brode, exploring his inspirational journey, his groundbreaking initiatives, and how his tireless advocacy is reshaping healthcare and forging a path to the more inclusive and equitable future in medicine. Dr. Brode. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. It's a really beautiful day here. It's nice and calm and relaxing this morning. And all the travel down here went without a hiccup. That's wonderful. Yeah, it makes for a nice morning for conversation. Yeah, it does. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and um, what your life was like growing up? Okay. Cool. So um, my name is Eric Brode. I'm Ojibwe uh, from Minnesota, and I'm also uh, Scandinavian. I grew up, I like to say that I was raised by uh, a forest and river. Uh, I grew up um, in uh, northern Wisconsin during the school years and then northern Minnesota around the Bemidji, Minnesota area and the White Earth Indian Reservation when I was a kid. And um, I think like a lot of my childhood, I mean, people ask like what it was like growing up you know, a lot of my childhood memories are all about like sports, community, and spending time like in the woods with family, friends, and community members and all along the rivers and lakes that are northern Minnesota. So, well, I yeah. spent very little time around rivers and lakes, yeah. but I did spend a lot of time playing sports. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. so, that's that's really what took up a lot of my time. And I, I feel like I had a, like a very happy childhood. Yeah. So, yeah. I think that means a lot. And yeah. I think it, it goes a lot into how we treat our patients and, yeah. and having those experiences children. Yeah. And now as a, and now as a father of two young children, I think like looking back on my childhood and things that I want to make sure they experience. And then also maybe some things to make sure that they don't experience. Yeah. Um, it's just really reshaped how I think about things in general in a big, big way. Yeah. So. I also have two small children and mm-hmm. it, it really does reframe your your thought process about just about everything completely. That we do. It's it's kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I thought about becoming a physician really early in life. Is mm-hmm. that something that you also no. knew when you were growing up? No, not at all. That, where did yeah. that come and from? And even when I go back to like high school reunions or uh, college reunions type stuff, high school especially, I think people are shocked and surprised. Really? That, yeah, I became a physician. Um, I think people always knew that I was a little bit of like a leader mm-hmm. or a little bit more of like an advocate. Um, and I always was like really involved in, in sports growing up. So people were not surprised that I went to college to participate in athletics. Um, but I think they are, they have been a little shocked with the journey <laughs> after that, where after college with medical school and then becoming like an academic physician and, and doing leadership initiatives. Well, I think it sounds like the leadership part of you has been kind of transcending through your childhood. It's a common theme. Yeah, it's a very common theme. And so, you know, you made it to medicine. Mm -hmm. And what 
was your inspiration for forming these programs and yeah and 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 going into academics the reason i like to i like to say that everything i do um i'm standing on the shoulders of giants so there were some big names in native health and in in native higher education that led to a person like me being successful in school okay you're talking about uh, Ruth Myers from the University of Minnesota Duluth, Rick Smith, um, Gerald Hill, Joy Dorsher, Arnie Vigneau, um, the you know Brett Benali Thompson. I mean, these are people who literally changed my life. Stacy Drewyard is another like, and I stand on the shoulders of giants. And much of what I do is. Um, it's not like I come up with like these amazing, great new ideas. Mm -hmm. It's really recognizing with both story and data and emulating things that have either worked in the past or, or recognizing that maybe some things didn't work and they just need to be iterated upon. Right. And so many of my um, mentors in this space like resulted in who I am. Right. So the Center of American and Minority Health, um, that center at University of Minnesota Duluth campus. Now it's led by Dr. Mary Owen, um, who is former president of the Association of American Indian Physicians. That center changed my life. And it like showed me who I could become one day. Mm -hmm. So before June 5th, 2001, I'd never met an American Indian male physician before. I'd never met an American Indian male Ojibwe physician before. I didn't know they existed. And on that day, that first day of a summer, a uh, structured summer program there, mm -hmm. I saw who I could become one day. It completely opened up my future. And I cannot explain probably in words how powerful that moment was to see the medical student then, now Dr. Brett Benali Thompson walk in the room, Ojibwe from the White Earth Nation, okay? Like I grew up on the White Earth Indian Reservation in the summers with my grandparents. So like seeing him like a person from White Earth standing there in front of me as a medical student was powerful. That same moment, Dr. Arnie Vanyo, who is a Black band of Ojibwe, um, first Ojibwe male doctor I ever met in my life. And I'd met many women mm -hmm. who were successful before, but I'd never met an American Indian male, let alone Ojibwe man who was a doctor or medical student and that like there is like the before that moment and the after that moment in my life and it completely opened my it, it blew my future wide open it showed me all the possibilities of potentially what my career could be i love that you use that word powerful mm -hmm. that is a word that i try to tell my students and my mentees and how powerful it is when you have that concordance, whether it's with your patients or with your mentor, and mm -hmm. when you see yourself at that that next oh, yeah. level, yeah. it like you said, it is life changing, and you yeah. can really you can really see yourself before and after. And I like I can think of many moments in my life where it just it just completely reshaped how oh, I yeah. thought about um, my career. Mm -hmm. And then when you think about you know how you're mentoring and how you're working to bring the next generation of physicians. Um, are there like, were there any specific moments that 
made you want to bring more people like you into medicine and really focus on Native Americans and and having specific pipeline programs for them? I think, um, you know, like, have you ever heard this, like the the phrase, like a fish discovers water last? No. You ever heard that before? No. Right. So like a fish realizes it has spent its entire life in water, the very last moment of its life when it's pulled from it. Right. Goodness. It's just like a, it's a way of like painting a picture of like, you take certain things for granted or just because it's always there, it's so normal. Mm-hmm. And I think um, it was in my, I think it was like 12 or 13 when I started to realize that, you know, like when I was a kid, I had to be trained to watch people very closely who mm-hmm. were like brittle diabetics. Mm-hmm. And, we, and we were in like pretty remote areas, right? The ambulance wasn't coming to help yeah. you. Okay. And so as a child, I had to recognize if someone was about to go into insulin shock. Uh, and I can remember that vividly, like having that responsibility. Um, and I started to realize as I got into like middle school and high school that other communities or like people who are not from that, like the native community in Northern Minnesota, mm-hmm didn't understand what that was like. So like some of the experiences I had were not normal, but I didn't yeah, realize did. that at the right. time, right? And so the the thing that I've thought about too in that context is not being normal isn't always a deficit. Mm-hmm. Not being just like everybody else isn't a deficit. It can actually be a strength. And so, you know, I went on to medical school I did a rural program. I um, got accepted to a rural training program. I was the only medical student at the Bemidji um, North Country Regional Hospital. I went back there because my grandma still lived there and I had a bunch of friends and family in the community still. And so I wanted to work around Minnesota Chippewa folks. I wanted to work around Ojibwe folks. And Bemidji's like right in the center of Red Lake, Leech Lake, and White Earth. Um, and there was this moment where uh, on on March 21st, 2005, it started off just like a regular day. Um, and we'd actually just traveled back from the uh, state boys basketball tournament. I was, I was a volunteer coach and uh, athletic trainer for the Leech Lake Catholic Bina boys team. And that next morning, um, everything just changed. There was a school shooting at the reservation high school up in Red Lake. And I was one of the people who responded uh, to that in the ER that day. And I was the only American Indian person in the ER that day, other than the patients and the parents that were coming in. And I I could just just distinctly remember this, like looking down the, because it turned into like a disaster unit, right? So like rooms are separated by curtains. It wasn't like the typical Mm -hmm. like walls and stuff. It was, it was curtains and dividers. And there were a lot more patients than there were, uh, bays or beds or rooms um and i just had this vision i was just like if i'm actually going to help make a difference in this one day me going at, uh, back to work in a tribal community as one physician i will make a difference but if i'm really going to help make a big difference there need to be hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of us that get trained and enter the workforce. I, I still remember this like real distinct 
as I watched a mother on the outside of a curtain and I was like standing on the middle. So like I could see her and the curtain was closed and I could see her son and she was scared to death to open it because she didn't know if her son was alive or dead. But I had that perspective of both worlds. Like right then, I just remember having this like real strong vision of like, something's got to change. And that was like just yeah. this like big shift. Need more physicians that yeah. can have that perspective yeah. and see what you saw and, and from your cultural background and be able to identify with those families and those Yeah. Regions. And the thing about identifying with the families, I think it was less about like cultural stuff at that moment from the fact that I recognized people from basketball games. Wow. I recognized people from community events, from like literally meeting people and their families and their kids. That These were just like normal. This is like I wouldn't say they were like my family, but they were definitely community members that I knew mm -hmm. and I saw. And like, um, you know, there were people that were like really important to me. And like some of their family members were the ones laying on the, uh, the gurneys and stuff that day. Um, that's a pretty profound experience, right? And I just realized in that moment, I was just like, a lot of the narrative that I'd heard up until that point um, was probably set by people who didn't necessarily have experiences like that or the same upbringing. And then it just like shifted and gave me this like intense drive to advocate for and to really move the needle in this space. So... It, I mean, that's kind it, of a crazy it, thing to talk it, about it, on a, on a, like, I, on a morning like this, but yeah, that, that's, but, that's it. But, you know, we all, we all have experiences that, mm -hmm. that, that shape us. And that was obviously a very profound experience uh, in a moment yep. that you will have vivid memories of forever. forever. Um, and, you know, that's a, I can't imagine what else you would do with that besides want to bring more people like you and from your communities into healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, where do you see these programs going? Like, what are your, what are your, your big wishes for your, um, your programs? When I think about American and Alaska Native youth, like I see tremendous potential. Mm -hmm. I see people that have lived a life that others consider to have like deficits or disparities. But when I look at the things they've seen and, and what they know and have learned at a very young age about like how to watch and listen and interact in circumstances that maybe aren't normal, like I mm -hmm. talked about earlier, they actually have more of what it takes to solve some of the greatest healthcare challenges that we have in this country, right? And to me, you know, when I hear people talk about like, oh, if Dr. Brote, you're just like a unicorn. How did you get out of there? And like, whatever. And how did you do this or do that or make it? Um, I just stop people and say like, I'm not a unicorn. Mm -hmm. I'm not exceptional. There were a hundred other kids just like me, just like me but the things didn't line up. Right. Maybe the door was opened and they didn't walk through it. Maybe nobody presented the opportunity to them. And so my hope is to really function as an advocate that can help open those doors right. for
for students and help them live into their fullest potential. And I think that what indigenous knowledge has to offer the world is very much a healing thing. And it's very much a, a writing or a, it's like a shift that has to happen in order to have values that align with having a more sustainable, equitable, just relationship, even with like the world and earth, right? right. I, I see a big, if American and Alaska, if you don't become health professionals, the world will miss out. And I think that's different than the narrative that other people yes. speak. So. How do you get that? How do you get that message out there? How do you, how are you helping to change the narrative or how can we help you change well, the narrative? In, in the small little realm of influence that I have, I believe in one student at a time. And then we've been able to hire a team. Mm-hmm that believes in those students, one student at a time. I mean, you've gotten a chance to meet, there's one of the students I work with right now. They're exceptional. Yeah. And I think our gift, like the team that leads NACO at OHSU, like our gift is when we look at people, we see how they belong and we see how they can make a difference one day as opposed to the antithesis of that. Immediately we come from a perspective of belonging and potential and possibility. Strengths-based. Yeah. That makes all the difference in this work. Makes all the difference. So, yeah, it's tremendously fun too because you get to work with students who, um, you know, are exceptional because of the challenges that they've gone through. You know, they're not, they're not here despite the challenges they're, they're, they're because of them and they're going to be great because, because of, of what they've experienced. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yes. Yeah. And I, I, I do truly believe if we can look at our students or applicants mm-hmm. in that way and, and shift from, oh, look at all the things they had to go through. Don't we feel sorry for that yeah. and realize how that's actually going to right. be like a, a really right. good part of their practice and actually benefit them and bring so many different experiences that other students just haven't have no no knowledge of and i yeah and even when you're participating in like admissions committee or there's certain personalities on those committees who are just like you know their their perspective is how do we get to know how do i reject this person versus how do we get to yes and it's like a fundamental difference uh, and I think it's some people believe it's their job to to reject people from medical school or health professional school, whereas there's other people who function as like advocates and like what has to happen to get to yes, yes here. Where, where, but that is like a where that do we is, need to grow. This? Yeah, exactly. And that's a that's a fundamentally different approach mm-hmm. and value system and attitude about the whole process. So, so. you mentioned admissions committees. Yeah, and there's yeah. a big Supreme Court ruling. Mm-hmm saying that we can no longer use race, ethnicity, mm-hmm. issues of diversity to to add into our basis for accepting. Mm-hmm. Or I guess you could look at it as rejecting applicants as well. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? How did when you read that headline, 
Where did the United States has a long, long way to go. And when I look at this country, and if you travel around and you visit people from all sorts of different communities in all sorts of different states and regions, there are great, great differences in health outcomes. There are places in the United States of America where the average life expectancy for men is 47 years old. That's the life expectancy. This is in the United States of America. I think what you just said is going to shock many people listening to this. (sighs) And when I think of like the health leaders and the health workforce that we need one day, it gives me great pause to think that we have a system that is successful enough to accurately assess people's lived experiences and story and holistic point of view to like really consider somebody holistically without understanding like who they are and where they come from. And in many ways, the United States, much of people's experiences is based on, it's based on race. And so I'm not sure, like we're already struggling to get ahead in, in, in these ways to get a more, to get a workforce that is able to deal with issues and, and work with a diverse population. Um, time will tell what this does to that. You know, California has had race-blind admissions for some time. And maybe the silver lining of this is that instead of just going off of check boxes and going off of quantitative things on maybe the silver lining is is maybe the rest of the country starts to catch up to the California systems because you guys have some of the most diverse medical schools in the country are right here in the state of California and you have race-blinded admissions processes. So A, it gives me great pause because I don't think we're there yet and this may be a hiccup for achieving equity in this country. And I've seen what California has done and California may have to step up and become the leader in this space. And I hope the the way that things are being done here is, yeah. is like you said, an, an example mm-hmm. to the rest of the country. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, there's a difference in being blind to race and being blind to distance traveled. Yes. And a difference between being blind to someone's what they consider their ethnic background mm-hmm. and ex- and what their experiences are and what they're 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 going to bring from their cultural perspective and so i think we just have to if we're careful about how we use this information we can still get to the the um goals that we're trying to achieve but i think a, it's a little scary to think of what people how people may use this 
and what they'll their interpretation of yeah. this ruling would be. What was your first thought when you saw that headline? You know, I I knew it was coming. Yeah, right. And I wasn't surprised. Exactly. Um, and I think as part of Stanford, we've already started thinking about how we're going to mm-hmm. word things so that we're within the law, but still making sure that we're getting the applicants and the the residents and the fellows that we want. Mm-hmm. And that being a very diverse group of people that comes from all different kinds of backgrounds. And, yeah. and diversity means a lot of different things. Right. So we we were all we were anticipating it and already thinking of ways that we could work around it to still um, reach our goals. That was my same thought too. Yeah. Because my phone blew up. Yeah. It did. I was sitting, I just got off the plane and my phone blew up here. People just texted me right and left from across the country. And when I saw that, I was just like. We knew it. Yeah. Like, this is not a surprise. Right. It's disappointing, but this is not a surprise. Right. And I think we have to be careful when we think about the fact that I'm not Mm -hmm. happy about it. Mm -hmm. I don't think that it was the right decision. I think we just have to move forward and work within the the constructs that we have. So this may surprise you a little bit, but at NACO, at the Northwest Native American Center of Excellence, for our like for our key programs, we do not consider one's race to participate in the Native American Center of Excellence. It's based on political designation. Are you a citizen or a descendant of a federally recognized tribe or Indian nation? It's just like being a citizen of California. To run for senator here, you have to be a citizen of California. To enter, so that's a political designation. And then just like our programming, what we do is we lean on the tenets of federal Indian law and the commerce clause of the U.S. Constitution. And we lean into that heart. And we, we select people for our most outward facing program based on political designation, not on race or ethnicity, which may surprise some people a little bit. I think it probably surprises most people who yeah. aren't part of your, your organizations. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, so for my programming, I don't know. For the programming that I work with, I'm not sure how it'll impact it. It may. Mm-hmm. It may not. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, right. You know, the, you know, you'll see what happens and you make yeah. a change based on right. your outcome. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, well, just to pivot a little bit. There's sure. One sure, sure, other sure. thing oh, that yeah. I wanted to, to, yeah. <laughs> to ask you. There you go. You were highlighted in Vogue and GQ. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about why yeah. those fashion institutions have chosen to discuss your work yeah so i think a lot of what my wife and i do revolves globally like big brush strokes Mm -hmm. in like native excellence and native voice in name the space right and Mm -hmm. so one space that we just stumbled into back in 2010 was um fashion and we designed a coat we thought it was going to be kind of one-off and next thing you know, we were showing our collection <laughs> in uh, Tokyo 
and other places. And we have a small um, Americana brand. And um, yeah, we've we've had the good fortune of um, being noticed like every once in a while for that. But it's all about being authentically represented within the fashion ecosystem from a contemporary American Indian perspective. Instead of letting like other people yeah. tell our story, instead of letting other people like rip off designs and sell it and and have like this Western lifestyle thing or whatever, like we're able to have our own and we're able to like rewrite native people into the histories around certain garments and things like that. Um, in places and ways where we were erased. There's a line from a book and it goes something like this. It was like, Indians make the best cowboys. It's not cowboys versus Indians. It's Indians make the best cowboys. It was from a native author. Mm -hmm. And isn't that the truth, right? Like there was like moments all along US history and fashion and design um, where native people have been tremendously influential even like the most popular shirt in the history of this continent is a variation of a tribal design a tribal form of shirt that was then like iterated upon as new textiles and stuff came you know what i mean yeah well, and so it's like <laughs> it just makes sense right and yeah. some of the the anyway so yeah we're we're involved in that well, space that is a little bit absolutely fascinating and it's, and it's fun too right and <laughs> so the, the, yeah and and a lot of people i think about like um the transactional way of describing it is like social capital yeah. social capital but in me it's more like like relational leadership and like relational networks or like what your network is and like finding the right people and like making positive change in the world within that network some way somehow like you just find the right people and that that's all that's all related to that well i love it well thank you again we really appreciate your time and you know sitting here talking to you i feel inspired oh, thank you and i hope the audience does too thank you for joining us our podcast is represented and we appreciate your time Hey, this is Dr. Larry Chu, producer at Represented and director of the Stanford Aim Lab. If you're enjoying our conversations, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on Spotify, Apple Music, or Google Play to never miss an episode. But that's not all. Make sure to visit our website at represented.health for episode-specific tips on creating impactful change in your community. Source directly from our program's esteemed guests. Let's stay engaged, stay informed, and continue to make a meaningful difference together. Thanks for listening.